Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Season 2 of This is Your Host, Jackson Hogan, back to regale you with, well, everything there is to know about alpine skiing. In a stunning journalistic coup, our first episode of Season 2 reprises the subject of our inaugural episode of Season 1, an in-depth interview with none other than the recently enshrined U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame member Greg Stump, arguably the most influential ski movie maker of our time. I hope you'll find this season's version of the Stump Chronicles to be slightly more coherent and much better produced. Greetings, dear listeners. I am so excited about this episode. It's with a world-famous cineast and a very dear friend. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present... Mr. Gregory Stump, recently inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Gregory, are you there? I am, Jackson. Uh, you know, I was just thinking, what a, what a beautiful title. Jackson illuminates everything about skiing. You don't think you could come up with something a little more confident, you know? Well, I, modesty has never <laughs> been one of my principal virtues. <laughs> and... It just so happens that during the span of a relatively long career in the ski business, I've done just about every job one can think of in the, that process. From the from the very lowest, I spent a long time at the swamp level, um, to the relatively rarefied air of developing new product for a variety of different brands. So, yeah, Jackson illuminates everything about skiing. And, of course, one cannot do so without revealing one's character and the character of one's listener as well so it's you know it's all the rich pattern of life well put <laughs> <laughs> anyway enough about me um these people are tuning in to hear about you they may know you of course as the mind behind and the creator of one of the great ski films if not the greatest ski film of all time the Legend of Oz, oh, excuse me, the Blizzard of Oz, which preceded the, the Legend of Oz, had to be had to be yes. a blizzard before there could be a legend. Right, um, right. You really can't put one in front of the other, can you? Yes. <laughs> the Legend of Me. Yes, oh, the, wait. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, 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 a making of, if you will, um, called The Legend of Oz that I was privileged to assist on. My assistant stood mostly of being in the wings applauding, but... Um, well, no, you talked You talked me out of the tree several times. I, I got stuck in the tree, and you said, come on down. Come on down. Come on down. One little branch at a time. It's okay to finish the movie. Right, we don't have to call the fire department. <laughs> to get you down. Cats will normally, normally get themselves out of the tree eventually. At any rate... To, uh, rather than to leap into, you know, the acme of your career um, and other various peaks in your life, um, let's peel back the veil of time to Greg Stump before he was a world-renowned or national champion skier, which we'll talk about momentarily. But your youth as a skier, you you had um, perhaps the one of the first exposures to the very concept of freestyle or you might say unstructured skiing that we know of. There's probably more than one birthplace of freestyle skiing, but certainly you were at one of them. Tell me about the, what was it called, free time that you had at the end of your ski day? Uh, no, it was called the free run uh, because there was a program for kids called the Junior Ski Masters. And this came out of uh, Peter Pinkham in North Conway, New Hampshire. He envisioned something other than racing for kids. And so it was very similar to what you would do today to be PSIA certified. 
as an instructor, you did your snow plow and your short swing, your vadling, um, stem Christie's. You were judged on all of these different final forms. And then at the end of the, at the end of the competition, you had a free run where you could put all these different kinds of turns together. And if you knew any tricks, this was the place to show them. So tip rolls and Royal Christie's and worm turns, uh, those are all, uh, you know, tricks that we would do in our free run. And we learned these things from Rudy Wersch, who was the ski school director at Little Pleasant Mountain in Maine, where I started skiing in ooh, 1968. And so Rudy was there, I think, the 69-70 season before he got run out after, I believe, <clears throat> fornicating with too many of the other people's wives. <laughs> <laughs> dear, dear listeners, there are many things to say about Rudy Wersch, who was one of the most brilliant acrobatic skiers of all time and was filmed, I think, later on by Barry Moore, maybe Roger Brown, literally being on stilts and juggling and skiing down Ajax. I mean, the guy was an unbelievable talent. He also <clears throat> reputedly was an unbelievable swordsman, if you Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> so I can imagine he was run out of more than one town before. I, I know of two. I know of two. <laughs> <laughs> we landed in Aspen at any rate. But right, I was but... wondering, where indeed did you learn things like worm turns and crossovers and Christie's? You needed somebody to lead the way. And turns out it's one of the great icons of acrobatic skiing of all time, Rudy Wersch, who's right, right. up there with Tommy Leroy and uh, Herman, Herman Golner. All those, well, those, they were the heart ski team you know the the american i don't even know if it was american because uh Glunder was german wasn't he and i i think it was uh it was one of those early roger brown films that he did for heart um that i became you know aware that rudy was really famous but he had brought a couple he was swiss had a couple uh, swiss ski instructors freddie and emile who were also you know very good at doing tricks and that's where we saw royal christie's and crossovers uh, outriggers Worm terms came a little bit later, but that's, you know, tip rolls because Rudy was very good at, you know, he, he could roll up on his tips of his skis and put his poles under his knees and could just do tricks. I mean, he, he actually skied on a mono platform. He had a wooden platform that had two ski bindings for each left and right foot, but it was mounted on a board that then mounted into a single ski. So Rudy was skiing mono ski before there was such a thing as a mono ski. So he was just, you know, crazy into it. And he was a good, good climber. You know, at the Boston Ski Show, he would famously rappel out of the bathroom window of the 11th floor of the Hilton to the awaiting officers on the ground. But he'd do it as a publicity stunt. And, you know, he'd make the cover of the Boston Globe. And, uh, you know, he was just a showman, Rudy Wersch. He was, you know, the Pied Piper of skiing is what one of the books about him. Uh, and he certainly was because we were eight, nine, ten-year-old kids following this really cool Swiss freestyle skier. And so that's where we learned all our tricks for the free run. So when it came time for the free run in the junior master's competition, you know, we, we had just a whole inventory of cool little tricks. Kids doing tip rolls and Royal Christie's and crossovers, and we're linking the tricks together. So we're in the first, you know, kind of early ballet run. So yeah, that was uh, it was quite a cool thing to be exposed to. And again, it was you know, it was for the first time it wasn't about going between point A and point B the fastest. It was it was about going between point A and point B with the most flair and style and 
Speaking of flair and style, you certainly have, one has to begin somewhere. And so you begin with an incredible mentor in the form of Rudy and his Swiss cohort. But you added to that because you went on to win a couple of national titles, amateur titles in freestyle ballet. And you didn't do that just by relying on Rudy's body of work. What, what did you add to your, or take us, maybe take us down at least part of your run that how you, you began with a little pyrotechnics? Well, this this was all later on. I didn't start blowing up a bomb in my ballet run until 78. So this was quite a bit down the road from the first initial exposure with Rudy skiing. We, you know, by, by about, I think, 72, once the professional freestyle circuit had emerged, then the amateurs, which is what I was doing, the, you know, Eastern USSA, they adopted a three event format for freestyle skiing. So we had ballet, moguls, and then aerials. And the aerials were upright because we weren't allowed to flip because of, uh, you know, the problems with the, you know, the paralysis of, I forget the guy's name, but at Waterville, you know, they had some bad accidents in the pro. Right. Peter Hirshhorn and later um, Scotty Magrino broke their backs within a two week period. And that set freestyle skiing in this country back 20 years. Right, because, you know, nobody wanted to insure it and then, then it you know, become illegal. So we could only do upright aerials, no inverts. Um, but we, you know, we had the three events. You know, I started doing well because, you know, it was age groups, like um, boys group three. I, I forget what the, we were, 10 to 12-year-olds, right? And, you know, so I would do very well and win, win the state championships when I was, you know, in my age group. Um, still, it was it was winning, and it was something that I was good at as a kid because I was terrible in school. I, I just didn't apply myself at all. But skiing, that was my identity. And that's, that's the place where I excelled the most. I was a pretty good soccer player. But skiing, that was that was really where my heart was. My runs, the ballet runs, they, they evolved over the years because now you could just specialize in ballet. And concentrate at ballet, then concentrate on your mogul event, and then aerial. So you had three separate things to get good at and to hone your skills. And so I was really good in ballet and I was pretty good in moguls. I would occasionally win moguls. Aerials, I didn't do great in, but if I if I won ballet and bumps, I could finish 10th in aerials and still win the combined, which is what would happen a lot. And by uh, 78, the Nationals were out at Copper Mountain, Colorado, and Fortunately, I shouldn't say fortunately, but my main competition, who was my best friend, Frank Howell, he came down with high altitude pulmonary edema in copper. So he had to pull out of the event. So I was pretty free and clear to win the juniors unless I screwed up. And so I did. I won the junior national title in 1978. I think I won ballet, got second in moguls, maybe 10th in aerials, but it was enough to win the combined. And that sort of set me on my path because once I had that national title, I reached out to people like Doug Pfeiffer and I said, what do I do with this thing? And he said, well, I meet this guy, Harry Leonard, who ran, you know, these coast to coast ski shows. And Harry hired me just because Pfeiffer said to do it. And so I, next thing I know, I'm skiing on one of those revolving decks in Boston, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, big markets across the country where these ski shows were a really big deal back then. I mean, we had thousands and thousands of people watching these deck shows. So it was it was quite the evolution. And then well, that's that's how I met Barrymore, was at the Boston Ski Show, uh, because 
uh, Jerry Simon and Harry Leonard were both telling me, there's this kid you got to see. He wants to be in you know, one of your movies. And so Dick checks me out and, you know, he says, like, I'm this little thing. I weigh about 125 pounds and I'm five, five and just a skinny little kid. But I could, you know, I could throw five forties on the revolving carpet, which is. If I may interject, Baron, um, dear listeners, you should know that to simply stand there on this revolving carpet, which is not as friendly a surface as revolving carpet may sound to your ears. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and over the back of it, if, if you err. It simply automatically rejects you like a bad legume off a factory belt off the back of the entire apparatus, which is quite a bit off the floor. So the the penalty for failure, aside from massive humiliation in front of tens of thousands of eyeballs, is your mangled body is on the hard cement that's behind the revolving carpet. Apparatus. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it was you know literally a revolving carpet. So imagine a conveyor belt with a white carpet on it that was tilted. And so, you know, you, you could ski on it. And the skis were Teflon bottoms with no edges. So again, to, to actually do an edge set and take off, because you'd have to do it down low at the, at the very lip of the carpet because you, you were gonna get thrown uphill. You know, I, I got it to the point where I could actually take off and do a one and a half spin in the air, a 540, I didn't know anybody else that could do that on the deck. I mean, Wild Bill O'Leary, and we had some of these, you know, older freestyle right. players, and they they couldn't do that kind of stuff. We, but but you didn't depend on your talents alone to lure Barrymore. You pursued him rather aggressively, did you not? Well, we we all went to dinner one night. I I knew Barrymore was in town. I had met him at the show, and he was to come to to dinner with. Harry Leonard, Jerry Simon, I think Bill O'Leary, Genya Fuller might have been there. I mean, it was just a who's who of pro freestyle skiers. And then me, I made sure I sat next to Barrymore at dinner. I was angling for it the whole time. The second he picked his seat, I was like, you know, I was like Rudy Giuliani sniffing up Trump's butt. <laughs> it was, that's a pretty good analogy, huh? Very enjoyable. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm so you the, weaseled yourself over to Barry I weaseled. Moore. I did. I did the Giuliani. <laughs> I did the Rudy. I Rudy. I Rudy Giuliani'd my way to sit next to Dick Barrymore. Well, it's a good. I, I'm glad we mentioned Barrymore because he's a great segue to you as a as a cinematographer. Because not only did he hire you, as we'll as you'll soon relate, to go on a one of his ideas of a world tour, and I think. I mentioned his ideas of world tour because that certainly influenced you into realizing just what it took and, and maybe how little it took for you to try to emulate some of this. But uh, talk to me about Barry Moore's influence on you and your, you know, interplay between the opening of your career and your, your. Well, life. I love the performers, you know, the performers was a absolute uh, turning point for a lot of people, a lot of skiers. And for me, you know, I, I think it came out in 71. So I would have been 11. And I mean, I know exactly what, where I was the first time I saw it. It was, you know, at the sports house in Bridgeton, Maine, a little ski shop. It was kind of a disappointment in a way to me personally, because I had laid away a pair of K2 competitions that spring. And so I paid for them. And I actually had them. And they were the old K2 competitions with the red, white, and blue top. And they, but it had a black bottom. And then watching 
the performers, I kept seeing red, white, and blue on the bottom of the skis. And I'm like, what, what's that? You know, I just, I, because first of all, no, no ski company at that point had ever done colors on the bottom of their ski. And this was a Bobby Burns innovation for K2. But K2 put their red, white, and blue on the bottoms of the new K2 competition. So I was, once I realized what, what was going on is that, you know, they'd modified K2 competitions with these new red, white, and blue bottoms. And I realized I got the old skis, man. I don't even have red, white, and blue bottoms. I was pretty disappointed. But it was the movie that really, it just, you know, it was exciting, and it it was I got a bunch of guys traveling around in a in a van, hot dogging it, and you know who didn't want to do that? So yeah, Barrymore was you know just a huge influence, and when I sat next to him, I didn't know, so he'd already checked me out on the deck, and he goes, okay, but but he asked me at dinner, he goes, can you ski bumps? And I said, yeah, and he goes, okay, well, can you get sponsorship and come on out to Sun Valley and let's shoot a, a bump skiing sequence out there? And I'm, I'm like, you bet. So because I had a relationship with Chris Hanna, your friend at Solomon through competing, you know, cause I, I, I'd got a lot of, they gave me free equipment for years and I was always in the newspaper. I was always in, you know, this, in the ski, you know, I was in the magazines and in press. So it was totally worth it for them to give me free stuff. But this time I wanted money, Chris Hanna, you know, what's for, well, Dick Barrymore wants, wants me. It's kind of a no brainer. So I think they, I think Chris gave me 500 bucks, which was a huge amount of money. So I got a plane ticket, flew out to Sun Valley. And of course, as you pointed out the other day, they, they don't call it Sun Valley. They don't call it Snow Valley. That's right. <laughs> they call it Sun Valley. And there wasn't enough snow. So, so Dick and I, we drove over to Jackson with Holly Deist, now Holly DuPont. And we hooked up with Peppy Stiegler at Jackson Hall. And we filmed a sequence there. And I'd never, I had not skied powder in my life, you know, Maine. We didn't, you know, I did ballet where you could see through to the dirt. Right? <laughs> we call that fast grass when I grew up. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, it was, I, so, you know, and it was before snowmaking was you know, everywhere. And uh, but, so I got out there and, and luckily Dick's son, Blake, gave me this perfect tip. He, you know, he said, well, put your, the tails of your skis in, the powder, so you're already facing downhill. So get your speed up. And then plane. And so I just imitated what Blake Barrymore was doing. And boy, sure enough, it was like magic. And, you know, I was skiing powder very stylishly. And in fact, Pepe Stiegler and Holly Deist, they never even made the segment. They were left in the cutting room floor. <gasps> and only Blake and I made the Jackson Hole segment. And then after Dick saw that footage, he said, do you want to come to New Zealand and Australia this summer? Scott Willingham and uh, Walt Hiltner. And I actually got uh, Jim Stelling's slot in that movie. And Jim Stelling, by the way, dear listeners, was one of the original K2 performers, which was the Barrymore film that, you know, first captured right. Stump's, you know, moth to the flame. <laughs> right, right. And I, but of course, I, I didn't know I was getting Jim Stelling's thing because I knew Jim. I, you know, I'd gone to Solomon Ski Camp and he was one of my idols. And in fact, he taught me some bump skiing drills that to this day, if I'm ever teaching bump skiing, I teach those same drills to my pupils. Um, but long story even longer, um, I again go back to Chris Hanna. And now I can go to uh, Olin because I'm skiing for Olin as well and Bogner. 
Uh, and then I, through the ski shows, I'd met somebody at Bush Beer. So I was able to get a Bush Beer sponsorship. So I raised a whole bunch of money. And so I was a free. Dick didn't have to worry about paying for me with anything because I came prepaid. <laughs> I Which was, is, it turns out, was part of, part of Barry Moore's secret to success. Sure. Uh, and, you know, it just it just made it even even more uh, attractive for Dick because he's getting a great skier, as he put it, young blood. You know, so I'm taking over, you know, an older guy's spot. And so the, the movie was was just great for me because, well, went to Hawaii, never been there, learned to windsurf. I'd never, you know, I didn't even know what windsurfing was. And, uh, and it was, you know, really difficult at first, but I ended up getting okay at it and stuck with it to this day. But uh, so we go to Hawaii and then we stop in Tahiti and stay at this place called the Bali High where Dick had friends that owned this resort. One of the things I think that you drew from that experience was all the different ways that Barry Moore depended on to pull it off. Absolutely. Uh, and he was, he shot by himself a lot of the trip. We did have another cameraman, the Scottish guy. Uh, and so Ken Campbell came with us into New Zealand and Australia, which, you know, again, was fun. I mean, Australia was kind of flat and boring, so I looked great there. And then New Zealand, you know, Dick warned us, he goes, we may not shoot one day. We may wait for a month. He goes, I've done it, you know, because it, it's very fickle, marine-influenced weather in New Zealand, as you might imagine. But it didn't do that to us. We got a couple of clear days, and so a, it just was a really good segment. So this constitutes the whole second half of the film, Vagabond Skiers, which was Barrymore's last feature film. But what I saw with Dick was it was really a one-man wrecking ball of a, of, a, of a filmmaker. I mean, he did everything. He booked the rooms. He booked the places to stay, often with his friends, as you pointed out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because he was famous. He was world famous at that point as a ski filmmaker. Uh, so it was just a really beautiful experience for me. I'm 19 because I'm, I'm like, wow. I even, you know, I turned Dick on to music like James Taylor and Earth, Wind and & Fire. And I go, why don't you use some of this kind of music in your movies? He goes, well, you can't. You know, it's 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 too expensive. You know, I can I can never I could never get that kind of stuff because they had to use you know needle drop, and so did Warren Miller. But that also put a little idea in my my head is that well, what if I can figure a way to get commercial pop music in my movies? And can we pause head- for one second? Will you just tell dear listeners what what needle drop means? Yes, in the early days of not not just ski filmmaking, but you know, any kind of uh, low-budget movie you were making, there were these record libraries you could purchase for a couple hundred bucks. And then every time you dropped the needle on the record and took a piece of this stock music and used it in your film, it was considered a needle drop. And there was another $50 fee for it. So you got charged by how many times you literally dropped the needle on the record. And you, you could legally use... The music, but the music, you know, as you might imagine, was, you know, pedestrian, not, shall we say? Yeah, it was very, you know, it was very pedestrian, sure, you know, very run of the mill, and that's that was the big Achilles' heel that I felt Warren Miller had because, like, once Barrymore had retired, 
you know, Warren was in even a bigger boat of, you know, not being able to afford music because Warren was so big. And I remember having this conversation with him. He said, I, I just, you can't, I can't afford it. It goes, if I go to, uh, you know, a, a record label for music, you know, it's a hundred thousand dollars to just start the conversation. So you couldn't get good music. And I had been working in radio as a DJ since like eighth grade or something. There was a program where us high school kids could go to uh, the university and on once a week, get out of school and, and be, learn to be DJ. So I was just way in the radio. And then eventually I started working commercially. I, I, my first commercial gig was in Vail at KVMT because I was out there for the summer training. And then in, right in, before I went to New Zealand with Barrymore, so it's still 79. And then when I got back from New Zealand, I, I got a job at WBLM, which at the time was a really good radio station in Maine. Now, granted, my shift was midnight to 7 a.m. Covered Sunday morning. <laughs> so I was by no means any good as a DJ. But You were the Ron Burgundy. <laughs> very, yeah, well, I, I didn't know this until a few years ago, but one of the owners, he I, he told somebody, and the guy told me, he goes, yeah, JJ used to say you had the most, it's a word for insincere. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the word now, but I always thought the word meant like I was good. But no, it means that you have this insincere voice where you're just saying the words and you have no conviction behind them. So, so you know, I, I sounded good because I had, you know, I had, a, I had a decent voice, you know, and I had the gift of the gab. But at the same time, I'm, you know, 19 and I'm still an idiot. Well, I'm still an idiot today, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, we have point, plenty of time, dear listeners. Yeah. We'll get to all. <laughs> but the point being is that I was working with pop music. You know, the, the, I, I knew all the new stuff that was coming out. I was very, very on the cusp. And so I actually stole a couple songs in my film, Maltese Flamingo, because I did ne Needle Drop for droids and... Most of Maltese Flamingo, we did we did make the opening theme song to Maltese. I mean, to Time Waits, and then um, Maltese. We 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 made music for Maltese as well. But Harry Baron, just quick, just quick, if I may, just quickly interject. It just not everyone may be as familiar with your total body of work. Um, could you just quickly lay out the chronology of your of your work that prior to Blizzard, so that people, when you mention these films, they can somewhat say, oh, that was his first, that was his second, you know. Mm -hmm. And by the way, dear listeners, his because he was starting more or less from scratch, there's a remarkable improvement in Greg's work as you go from, you know, product one to product two to product three. So if you'd mind just a quick chronology. No, not at all. Uh, 83, I, I dropped out of college, and this was all planned. My junior year, second semester, I dropped out of college. I was able to raise sponsorship money, drove out west and made the droids. And then 84, 85 made uh, Time Waits for Snowman. 85, 86 was uh, Maltese Flamingo, and then Good, the Rad, the Gnarly. And then in the fall of 88, I released Blizzard of Oz. So Blizzard was my fifth movie in five years. And I, you know, I never went back to university after that. I just dropped everything because I was, I mean, I, I could raise enough sponsorship money so I didn't have to sell a single VHS tape. And we didn't tour. Like we weren't touring at that point either. So because of the advent of VHS tapes and the VCRs in homes, I could make a ski movie that was only sold 
as a tape. And I didn't have to sell any to, to make money because I'd raised sponsorship money. So it was this really ideal thing. But again, I'm stuck with dealing with needle drop music for the ski films. And I actually nicked, I went ahead and stole some music from my favorite producer, Trevor Horn in England. I, I nicked a couple songs that I used in Maltese Flamingo. And then Maltese Flamingo got huge, relatively. And, and keep in mind, Warren Miller was the only person making ski movies in America at this point. Barrymore had retired. There was one, just Warren Miller. So that was my only competition. And granted, it was, you know, serious competition. But I could deliver stuff that was really green at first and kept getting better and better. First, we were shooting on video because we couldn't afford film and then switched over to film. But I'd stolen some music. So I thought, okay, this has got to stop because I'm going to get in trouble. Because I just, it, every every movie exponentially just got bigger and bigger and I, I got to be more known. So I'm like, I got I to gotta sort something out. So I decided to, we were going to make all our own music for Good, The Rad, The Gnarly. And we did. So the entire soundtrack to Good, The Rad, The Gnarly is all music that we created in Portland, Maine with local musicians. So that was good, but it wasn't great because, you know, Trevor Horn was great and that's what I really wanted. So I called up ZTT Records in London and I wouldn't know this for 20 years, but it was the first day that my friend Liam Teeling was at work at ZTT Records because Trevor Horn's wife, Jill, had bought Stiff Records which at the time was a big label. And Liam was the human asset that came with all the music for Stiff Records. So anyway, it's his first day at ZTT. And I call on a Monday and he's hard ass British rock and roll guy. And he was like, yes, all right. Well, I can see you. If you can be here on Thursday, I can see you Thursday at 10 a.m. You know, and I'm in Maine and he's in London. And I'm like, I'll be there. So I get a ticket. I show up in England. I show up at 10 o'clock in the morning and I've got a little backpack with my posters. And I also had Swatch as a sponsor, which was a very, very big deal. And that happened only because a friend of mine had gotten the job as a marketing guy at Swatch. He was the third employee. I kind of, I sort of was the fourth employee at Swatch. So anyway, it had this Swatch thing going and that's taking off like crazy. So they, you know, they agree to see me probably because of Swatch. And so, but then I get there and I've got, I'm just this kid with this backpack with a bunch of posters and some VHS tapes. And I also had powder magazine articles because Neil Stebbins was giving us huge coverage, 10 page spreads. Right from the start. Right from the start. Neil saw something, you know, and, he, and of course, you no, know, Neil, everybody was kind of, there's a lot of anti Warren Miller in the ski industry, especially with the powder crowd. Neil Stebbins, you know, the, the, Warren was just, he was, was the establishment. Yeah, he was the establishment. So I was something new. But anyway, I get to London and this Liam's like just looking at me like, what? And then he introduces me to Jill Sinclair, which is Trevor's wife, his, who runs the, you know, runs the business. And at that point, you know, they had some music happening, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood was breaking. I mean, they were major. I, I think Trevor won producer of the year in England, which is a big deal. The year that I flew over there but anyway so I, I meet with Liam and he's looking at me and he's like Stumpy my boy I tell you what you can have all of our music for free on one condition 
and one condition only. And that's that this movie you're about to make is fabulous. Because if it isn't, it's not going to see the light of day. That's what he told me. Basically, if the movie stinks, you can't use our music and it'll never see the light of day. (laughs) (laughs) Fairly ominous. Oh, yeah. He meant it, too. He absolutely meant it. So next time I was in England, I brought over an advanced copy of Blizzard of Oz. And Liam took one look at that because they were all skiers. That's the other thing at ZTT. They were all, they would ski uh, Maribel and Courchevel. You know, they were rich British skiers. And dear, dear listeners, if you are not aware, the Brits are absolutely passionate about their skiing and they're incredible travelers as, you know, <laughs> witness British Empire. Well, and you, and you can't be, you have to be wealthy to be a skier in Britain, you know, unless you're going to go up to Abbeymore in Scotland, you know, because you have, you have to go to the Alps, you have to buy the equipment. And so I was fortunate that these record company people um, they were skiers. So they took one look at Blizzard of Oz and they're like, well, hot damn, kid. Okay, what's next? And then the other thing that happened simultaneously with Blizzard's release is that the bands that I used in Blizzard of Oz, namely Act and Propaganda, completely unknown in America, had zero record sales in America. But once Blizzard came out, they started getting record sales. And at that point, the only way you could get noticed musically was on the radio, on FM radio or MTV. Those are the only two outlets. And so my ski movies became kind of a a ski movie, MTV, you know, combination. You know, it's like ski movies meet MTV. That's where I was, I was at. And then when their record sales, when ZTT's record sales started ticking up, then they're like, okay, this is just, ex- what's, what's wrong with this story? Nothing. You know, what do you want to do now? License to Thrill, okay. With License to Thrill, we actually, actually cut the movie in Hawaii using all this new ZTT music that nobody would heard. It was all just absolute cutting edge. Bands just coming out, nasty rocks, stuff like that. And I cut the movie in, in Hawaii, did a rough cut. And then th- they flew me to London and we remixed the entire movie so we took out the lyrics in a lot of places in the songs and in and where the lyrics were i put in skiers talking interviews and and my live sound and i didn't narrate that movie because i was so embarrassed of the narration in blizzard of oz i didn't like it i had a number of french mispronunciations which were especially egregious to me couloir you know, I just I just butchered whatever French word I tried to use. So with License to Thrill, I didn't narrate. I let the skiers narrate the movie. And that that movie really was what MTV Sports became. Before I did License to Thrill, the athletes didn't talk. They certainly didn't talk in any ski movie. But I'd seen a windsurf film called The Impact Zone where the athletes talked and there was no narrator. And I'm like, ooh. That's where I'm going. And so I did that with License to Throw. We went to England and you know, remixed the music. We, you know, we were in the same studios that like the Rolling Stones used and, and uh, Bowie and English rock royalty. So it was really exciting. And it came out great. And, and I think License is one of my better movies, actually. And then what? How, just to continue this evolution in the movie business, because you're not, you don't have that many more 
ski movies in the pipeline at that point. What follows thereafter and then what causes you to finally pull the plug on the entire enterprise? I mean, I made a movie a year for 11 years because after Blizzard, we did License. And after License, which was really successful, more successful than Blizzard in financially, then I did Dr. Strange Glove, which was a huge turd. Um, <laughs> it's now considered a cult classic. But I mean, I, I was faced with multiple problems that I had not encountered. First, my star, Glenn Plake, he told Bernard Solomon of Solomon that he would sign with Solomon. And then without telling me, so I signed with Solomon for big money and Glenn's a big part of the, the project. But then Glenn signs with Reikley Tyrolia. I was at Solomon during some of this period, dear readers, and I must say, Tiroli is the one burr under our saddle that we would, could not tolerate. No, so now I've got the arch-rival of Solomon the, being the, they're the bindings for my star. So, so now I've got to make a ski movie, mostly about Glenn Plake, but I can't show his feet. Now, <laughs> this, is, this is problematic, dear listeners. <laughs> when when one is making a ski film, I couldn't show Plague's feet. So, you know, we've been, we've been shooting a lot of high speed slow mo, and I knew this as we're shooting. So I'm, I'm shooting a lot of shots where it's super high speed of, of Glenn's upper body because he was a beautiful skier to watch with his upper body because he was so quiet, especially in the bumps. So I I just did everything I could, and then I had the other skiers. They were all on the right gear: Scott Smith, Mike Hatrup. Kim Reichelm, all you know, all the people that were skiing for me then, they were, the rest of them were all in the right gear. So I could show lots of close-ups of Solomon product. And Solomon was making a boot by that point. Um, but I had to avoid Glenn's feet. So that was a really huge challenge in Dr. Strange. And then it was the second year in a row there was no snow in Europe. So, you know, I'd, I'd gotten famous on Blizzard of Oz and Chamonix, but I couldn't go back because there was no snow. And so Strange Glove was immediately saddled with two huge hurdles glenn being on the wrong wrong product my star you know and then no snow in europe so strange glove i had to come up with some you know wacky thing i think i might have been smoking a lot of pot at that point in fact i'm positive i was and i thought this was just a great solution this movie i mean i, I may as well have taken a turd on the table it was not good the reaction for, for most people, I, I, I can epitomize this by a, a thing that happened in Seattle. We're at big show in Seattle. We probably had 2,000 people. Strange Glove is playing. And whenever it went back towards da 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 Extreme World starring Glenn Plake, the audience would moan by, by like the third one of me cutting back to this thing, you know, because I had like this show within a show and the audience would moan. Oh. Not well received, huh? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It really wasn't good, especially on the tales of license to throw in Blizzard. This is not what my new base had 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 paid money to come see. But Who, walking, where, by the way, a quick anecdote, a little insertion. Where where are you actually living when this this fiasco falls? Strange glove. I was living at my condo in Hawaii. Okay, um, so I was living there, and that's where I I did all the. Uh, all the editing. Um, and then I, for the first time ever, I had left main video systems, which was the place I'd done all my previous movies. And I worked at Master Communication out in Los Angeles. 
who was a friend of mine from windsurfing, Robert Masters. And then he was total tech head, you know, British, absolute scientist geek. There, anyway, so he had a studio and I, I worked there. So we had a lot of you know, new special effects. And I was do, doing, I was at, throwing all these bells and whistles at Strange Glove, like the old proverbial lipstick on a pig. And it, it didn't work for my audience. And at the Seattle show, I remember sitting on like the, looking out the window at the crowd walking away. And, and I see these two guys and I can hear them. And that one guy goes, that sucked. And his buddy goes, what? That rocked. There you were. To, you know, one man's freedom fighter was another man's terrorist. So it wasn't well received, Strange Glove. And further complicated by Coors Light had come on as a sponsor. So I basically had two lead sponsors now. And I didn't do this deal. My my partner at the time, Carl, did it. And Swatch, they thought, and rightly so, that they were the lead sponsor. And then suddenly we had Coors Light in there. And anyway, so I come out with this horrible movie, Dr. Strange Glove, which now is a cult classic. And now when I watch it, it's hilarious. But when it came out, it, it wasn't well, well received. So I, at that point, I just started seeing Ace Mackay Smith. So then I moved to Whistler and was still sponsored, but now by Coors Light. Uh, Swatch, they, they bailed at that point. They'd had enough of me. But with Coors, I think we're getting 90,000 bucks sponsorship from them, which was you know huge. Because then you still get Solomon and K2 and whoever else I could talk into it. But now I'm living at Whistler. And the first Gulf War happens. And I, I had become friends with a lot of the Canadian downhills, Rob Boyd in particular, because Ace was friends with all these, all these Canadian downhill guys. So, By the way, quick interjection, folks, since you don't know Ace, the name Ace Mackay, perhaps, jaw-dropping beautiful. And one of those gals who, in the sexiest of nightclubs, is up in a podium sort of showing everyone else on the floor exactly what dancing is supposed to look like. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. She was uh, Mama Gogo at Tommy Africa's. I mean, she, she had a whole bevy of go-go dancers. And so I just she, thought that dear listeners ought to know that Ace, Ace wasn't, wasn't a girlfriend. Ace was one of the most beautiful women in what was one of the hottest ski areas in the world. And she could ski. She was a really good skier. She, well, she was a racer, trained racer. And so, uh, and she, you know, she lived at Whistler, so she could, she skied powder. She was a great powder skier. So, you know, I'm filming her. I'm starting out, you know, in the beginning of a 10 year relationship. But then I made Groove Requiem in the key of ski. Uh, and I did another really risky thing. And this is right after Strange Glove. But I used the Gulf War because we were, we were in Europe when that was going on. And you fly over on 757s or 747s, whatever they had, and they'd be empty. So you have a whole, nobody dared to fly because of the first, you know, the Gulf War. So I decided to use the timeline of the Gulf War as the timeline for my ski movie. And this was very, very risky because I had to walk that knife edge down the middle and not make my opinion of the Gulf War known in a ski movie. You know, I had to use it just as the timeline. That was the, you know, that was the skeleton I attached the story to. And I didn't know this till years later when my friend Lucas Nelson was working with Neil Young, is that Neil Young that year released his concert movie and used the Gulf War as a timeline. And I, I didn't know that till a couple of years ago when Lucas was working for Neil. Anyway, Groove Requiem, just the name alone, 
you know, Requiem is a, is a funeral dirge for the dead. It's a groove Requiem in the key of ski. It had lots of subtle layers, and my narration on that movie, I think, is my best. And I was very much influenced by early Ken Burns stuff, because uh, he had a narrator, Peter Coyote, who I would meet years later through Willie Nelson. Um, I don't... <laughs> Can I say anything without dropping a name, Jackson? I don't think so. <laughs> well, our dear listeners at least know these names. So. <laughs> right, right, you know. Uh, but Groove came out really great. And in Groove Requiem, I was getting dat digital audio tapes out of ZTT Records in London because I'd befriended one of the engineers. And he was sending me dat tapes of this new, completely unknown artist that they were going to break out with their the debut album. And that was Seal. So in Groove Requiem, the whole ending of the, well, the beginning and then the ending, it's, these are all tracks which are, they're not even the tracks that are on the album, Seal's first album. They're early dat, basically smuggled out of ZTT Records, ZTT Records. So we, so we get Seal. Seal, you know, builds the, the climax to that movie musically. And it, it's the Alaska sequence with Schmidt and Dan Donnelly. And it's just beautiful. It, it just comes out great. And at that point, I'd never met Seal. That movie, that was way bigger than Blizzard of Oz in terms of sales and touring. I mean, it was my biggest success to date. But Seal, who I didn't like, I didn't know Seal. I'd never met him. He was living in Los Angeles and starting to snowboard. And every time he'd go to the snowboard shop, some stranger would come up to him and say, oh, man, I really love uh, really love the, your music in the new stunt movie. It's awesome. He's, oh, yeah, thanks a lot. Right, yeah, glad you like it. You know, and finally, so many strangers came up to Seal and told him how great this Groove Requiem rec movie was, this stunt movie. Seal calls his manager and goes, what fucking ski movie have we done? <laughs> oh, you don't say fuck. You said bloody. What bloody ski movie have we done? And his manager says, "Oh, that's just this little thing. Well, it's a friend of Trevor's. It's no big deal." He goes, "Well, I think it is a big deal because all these people keep coming up to me that I'm telling me how great it is." So Seal finally sees it and loves it. And next thing I know, he's coming to Vancouver to perform, and I've reached out to management and. Lo and behold, there's a message on my answering machine from Seal. It's like, hey, Greg, it's Seal. Listen, I, I finally saw the Groove move. I really love it. It's really great. Hey, so I'm playing Vancouver tomorrow night, and um, I'm staying at the such and such, Four Seasons, and I'm registered under Mr. So-So. That's, that's what his hotel alias was, Mr. So-So. And, and <laughs> he, was every, he was anything but So-So. But then we uh, so I go to the show in Vancouver, meet him afterwards, and he decides he wants to come. He's going to come out to Whistler the next day and go snowboarding. So it's great. So he meets me, and suddenly I'm guiding Seal snowboarding at Whistler. Just he and I. So we're just just he and I. We're spending a lot of time together, and I eventually help him find a house that to rent. And he just kept coming back. But one of the things he told me, he said, "I think Groove Requiem broke me in North America." I'd be like, oh, Henry, I, that's his real name, Seal Henry. And my Henry, I mean, you were going to break anyway. He goes, yeah, but I really think that ski movie really was a big part of it. And 
I, I can't claim that, but that's what he says. But maybe it was. It was certainly one of the things. Because, again, he, he did have that hit Crazy, which made it onto MTV. And the video made it onto MTV. And so, you know, he won a Grammy for Crazy. You know, so it, it, it was one of many things that helped break Seal. But it, it was really what an ego stroke to have him tell you that. And so we stayed friends, and I got to use his music in subsequent movies. You know, but I, I, at this I, point in your in your life's narrative, if if correct me if I'm wrong, you're you're living in Whistler, which is perhaps the most happening ski resort in North America. You're, free, free season passes for me and my girlfriend. Exactly, who happens <laughs> to be a, a, an iconic woman in her town at the peak of her powers. Um, winters are good. Snow is good. Money is good. Uh, fame is good. What what lay right around the corner? Why 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 you had the best setup, uh, ideal ski bum setup maybe ever? Why aren't you still there? <laughs> well, it was getting more and more dangerous because this extreme thing that I just you know I stole it from the French, the skiers of the extreme. You know Patrick Balançon, Bruno yeah, Sylvain and all these French extreme skiers, and you know so I. I had sort of latched on to the extreme, to the word and concept in my ski movies. So my ski movies were now being known as extreme ski movies. Whereas the truth was, I was anything but extreme. I was a ballet skier, a bump skier. And, you know, I was not an extreme skier. I could get the cameras in place because I was a good skier so that I could film extreme stuff. But I wasn't, I was across the valley <laughs> you know, doing the long lens shot it was just getting more and more dangerous. And I was getting more and more uncomfortable with where it was going to go. And by that point, MSP had started making films. I think TGR was starting or just about to start. And they were totally built on extreme. That's what those movies, MSP and TGR, and that was all about extreme and how rad and how scary it could get. And so I'm getting more and more nervous. Plus I'm, you know, I'm skiing every day finally, at Whistler, whereas all those years before making ski movies, I, ne I never skied for fun. Whereas at Whistler, free dual mountain season passes for me and my girlfriend, I, I just skied powder. I was getting 140 days a year of powder. If I made one turn in the powder, I called it a powder day. <laughs> but fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. I, I did. I skied. I had, had a game. I, the snow went over my head. One turn. That's a powder day. But so I, you know, I'm skiing at Whistler, and plus the World Cup downhill was there. I, I'd become friends with Boyd and uh, Stemley and Felix Belcheck and a lot of the, you know, ca Canadian downhillers of the time. And and Rob was, you know, national hero at that point, having won the Whistler downhill the year before I got there. Uh, so I'd started filming more downhills. I filmed Belgardina and the Whistler downhill. Started, you know, getting more into the racing, getting those into my movies. Uh, and and wanting more and more to get away from the extreme thing. Uh, and then uh, Siberia in 1995, we are approached by the Japanese version of Powder Magazine. They've got the money uh, and they want to film Scott Schmidt and Craig Kelly skiing and snowboarding together in Siberia. And they've got a huge budget. Everything's covered. And so... We go to Siberia, and the heliski operation there was just prehistoric. 
you know, it's this huge Sikorsky helicopter not made to drop the skiers off on a mountain. The pilots had never flown in the mountains before, let alone do mountain drop-offs. And the avalanche danger was insane. It was the worst kind of avalanches. They were ripping down to the rocks. And just our vibration of us walking around up on the top would send off these huge avalanches. So we're just like going, holy smokes. And then we have a really close call where three members of the Japanese part of our our crew, the sound guys, they just about got swept off in what would have killed them for sure, avalanche. So we were just really nervous. We, we thought, well, let's try this one other aspect of the spot we'd, we'd stoked out that we didn't think was going to slide. And then sure enough, it did. And, you know, I got it on camera. You know, it's Scott Schmidt outrunning an avalanche. It is just riveting footage. It's just riveting, riveting, frightening. And if you know anything, you know, it's riveting to anybody who just doesn't know anything. But if you, if you are at all familiar with avalanches, you realize that Scott just saved his life. You know, he mentions this, I think, in, in one of the sequences, opening sequences in Legend of Oz, where you have Scott talking directly to the camera. It was the only time he ever asked for the mountain's permission to go, and it told him not to go, and he went anyway. And um, Sure enough, he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have. Sure enough, he should not have. And it slid, and after that incident, yeah, I mean, Scott gets down to the bottom, and I'm just like, oh, my God. I mean, I'm shaking, and my voice is... I'm, 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 I'm in shock that this happened, but at least Scott's alive. And I'm like, Oh my God. And he goes, somebody's going to get hurt. And that was that Scott called it off in Russia. So we got out of there alive and I still had to finish this movie, Siberia. So I'm like, how am I going to do this? So we went back to our old place. We love to shoot Island Lake Lodge in, in British Columbia. And we went there and then again, we get into a hairy situation even there. And, you know, I, we've all got radios by now, so I can hear Scott talking to Craig Kelly. And they're, like, hugging. They're, they're worried this whole slope's going to slide, and they're scared. I've only heard Scott Schmidt scared twice. And both times he had very good reason to be scared. And he's, now he's scared again. And I'm just like, you know what? Screw this. And I make – I'm not a – religious person although i was forced to go to church every sunday as a kid not in the winter because we got skiing i made a pact with god i said dear god get these two guys off the side of this hill alive and that's it i quit i will not ever ever film one of my friends in a dangerous situation again i quit this extreme thing just get them off the hill alive and they got down alive and i i hung it up wow this seems like an appropriate moment to end this particular bout, which has been run for about an hour, which has been absolute sheer delight. And it seems to have covered the span of your oeuvre, you know, obviously touching lightly here and heavily there. But nonetheless, we've, we've covered quite a bit of ground. And we still have other ground that we can talk about in our personal history and so forth. But I think in the interests of our, our readers being able to contain all of this information <laughs> in one enjoyable experience... We'll cut it off here. We'll and, call it an episode. And so we shall, Gregory. As they say in a film set, it's a wrap, at least for this week. Be reassured, dear listeners, that we'll visit with Mr. Stump again this year, along with other movers and shakers who influence our wonderful sport. I remind you again that this podcast has been brought to you without commercial interruption by realskiers.com, where insiders go to stay on top of the trends. 
This has been Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.